0: We are continuing our series in the New Testament book of Colossians. We've made it to chapter 2, so if you'll be finding Colossians 2, we are going to look at the first 7 verses this morning. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7. You may remember a few weeks ago, we had a man by the name of Charlie Worthy in our service. Charlie is an International Mission Board missionary uh, with our International Mission Board. And he has been in Italy for nearly two decades now. Not quite that long, but nearly that. Uh, And we have been working with him for uh, six or eight years probably at this point, having taken numerous trips over there to encourage and help him and the church that he works with. And so while he was here, uh, Jake Honeycutt and I had breakfast with him on that Saturday morning. And one of the questions I asked Charlie was this. I said, how is the church in Arezzo doing? Now, it's a brethren church. That is, it's not a Southern Baptist church. Charlie is not, by definition, a church planter, as many International Mission Board missionaries are. He is there to support and help all the other missionaries and get volunteers like us over into the field, not just in Italy, but all over Europe. So he he didn't plan a church in Arezzo, but he was working with this Brethren church. Arezzo is a city of about 100,000 residents. And as far as we know, there were only two evangelical churches in that entire city of 100,000 people. One was a Pentecostal church, and the other was this Brethren church. And because it more aligned with our Baptist doctrine, Charlie was working with this church. A church that had been planted by Brethren missionaries some 125 years ago. So again, I asked Charlie, how is the church in Arezzo doing? And to my surprise, he said, it no longer exists. The church is gone after 125 years. Marco, who was the pastor of the church and had been the pastor of the church for as long as we have been associated with that church, is a very intelligent, well-spoken, he's an author, he's written several commentaries in Italian. But in recent years, he started moving away From the gospel he started teaching a variant of the gospel i don't know all of the details but he began teaching in some measure that in order to be a genuine christian you actually had to become a jew he began teaching judaism as necessary for salvation and little by little the people started leaving the church because of this false doctrine And as a result, the church dwindled down to just a very few people who continued to convince themselves that in spite of everybody else leaving, they were right, and they continued teaching this false doctrine until there was only a handful left and Charlie, uh, I mean, and Marco himself left. He is now in Switzerland somewhere teaching this same thing in some sort of institute. There are still a few people who are meeting in a home, but the church, as a church no longer exists. 125 years as a church. Think about all of the time, all of the resources and money that were invested, all of the service and all of the sacrifice that went, went, went into that church over all of those many years. And now it is no more. You say, well, what about Jesus' promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? Well, that is a promise for the universal church. That is, there is always going to be a true church. But that is not a promise that each individual church, that is, the local church, is going to continue to exist. In fact, Lifeway just put out a study this past week. This study dates back to 2019. That is, it is pre-pandemic. And in 2019, there were more churches that closed their doors in America than those that began That is, in spite of all of our efforts, and this is not just Southern Baptists, this is across the board, but in spite of all of our efforts at church planting, there were more churches that closed and ceased to exist than there were that opened. And I imagine those numbers are only gonna get worse when it comes to what happened during COVID. In fact, the churches we are reading about in the New Testament, they're gone. There is no church in Colossae. And I told you at the very beginning of this study, that the entire city of Colossae hasn't even been excavated. It's just there, but nobody's really studied it. Look at all of the churches in the New Testament. Go to Revelation and look at the seven churches there. They don't exist anymore. Those individual churches are gone. Why do I bring all of that up? Because we're talking this morning about spiritual battles That is, spiritual battles both personally, that is, all of us are going to face spiritual battles, and spiritual battles corporately, that is, spiritual battles as a church. And if we do not win these spiritual battles, then we will either personally make shipwreck of our own faith, as many believers or professing believers have done, or we will find that in years to come, this church or others like it will follow suit and cease to exist. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2 as we talk about this very serious subject of spiritual battles. Paul writes, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all of the riches of the full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, I bring that initial story up to remind us that when we read these New Testament letters to old churches, that this is not just ancient material, but this is present reality. Even as a church in Colossae in the first century can have problems that would lead to its demise if Paul had not stepped in and encouraged it. So New Testament churches today can face the same things. And if we are not careful, we can follow in the same pattern. So I want you to see first of all this morning that the struggle is real. I saw a headline this weekend concerning our housing market in Knoxville that had that exact same title. The struggle is real. Whether you're renting or buying, the struggle is real in trying to find a place to live. Well, I'm not talking about the housing market in Knoxville. I'm talking about the spiritual battles within our personal lives and within the church. And we must acknowledge that this is real. Paul is having a struggle. I want you to know, he says, how great a struggle I have for you. And not just for the church in Colossae, but he mentions Laodicea as well. And I told you week one, that this Lycus Valley as it was known then had this this tri-city area, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Now, Hierapolis is not mentioned here. It is in chapter 4, and there is speculation as to why it's not mentioned here. Either the gospel had not taken root there as it had in these other two cities, that is, the gospel was not nearly as successful there, or they were not struggling as these other two cities were. Ultimately, we simply don't know. But Paul says, I have a struggle on your behalf, and that word is the same word that we looked at last week from chapter 1 and verse 29, where we said it speaks of exerting great effort in a fight or in an athletic competition to the point of exhaustion. And I've told you before that in high school I wrestled. I know it may not look that way, but I did. And there were times when even in a six-minute match, that's as as long as a high school wrestling match goes. And yet there is so much energy exerted in a six-minute match that sometimes I was just lay behind the bench after my match was over, totally exhausted from that six-minute competition. That's the, the kind of word that Paul uses here to speak of the concern and the struggle that he has for those in the church. Paul's concern was... A major part of his life. We looked at that other passage some weeks ago where he says, on top of all of the other struggles I've had physically, it is my concern for the churches. And I remind you that these are not even people that Paul knows. He doesn't know them personally, for as many as have not seen me face to face. He has not been to this church. He did not start the church. In all likelihood, he has not been to the city. He simply knows a few of them by name, but that's all. And yet, there is this deep spiritual concern that caused him agony of spirit. A casual reading of Paul's New Testament letters will show you that he took the Call to plant and build up churches very seriously. This was not just a career for him. This was not just a resume booster. He genuinely loved the people and desired to see them grow, and that's why he wrote these letters that we are that we are looking at, especially when they faced spiritual battles and were in danger of going backwards. It's not specifically mentioned in this text, but we certainly have to understand that the background would be that if Paul is so concerned, if he's having such a struggle for the spiritual lives of others, it is in part because he had a a spiritual struggle himself. That is, he took seriously his relationship with the Lord and his personal spiritual growth. You see, if you and I are comfortable in our spiritual lives, if you and I are complacent about our spiritual lives, then not only are we not going to be concerned about our own spiritual growth, but we're certainly not going to be concerned about the spiritual growth of others. But once we begin to take seriously our own relationship with the Lord, and once we begin to grow and mature in our relationship with the Lord, then naturally we are going to want to see that in the lives of others, especially those with whom we go to church. And so there must be a concern personally that then leads to a concern corporately. So the natural question for us this morning is this, if Paul was struggling so mightily about a church that he'd never been to, how much are we struggling concerning a church that we call our own? Do we face this same kind of struggle as we think about the spiritual condition of our own church? A church that not only have we been to, but for many of us, we've attended for long periods of time. Some of you grew up in this church. Some of you had parents and grandparents who grew up in this church. You've been here for years after years. And I'm simply asking you, even as we see Paul struggling over the spiritual condition of this church, do you have that same concern for this church that you call home? And again, I'm talking about a spiritual struggle, not a physical one. I'm not talking about are we concerned about the physical condition of our buildings, though of course we ought to be concerned about that. I'm talking about the spiritual development of our church. Because if we are not careful, we can become complacent and conclude that because this church has existed for over 230 years, then by nature it's always going to exist. And we can just sort of assume that because we can worship here, then our children can worship here and our grandchildren can worship here. And on down the line it will go. But that will only be true if we are concerned for the spiritual growth of the church in the moment, today. The church does not exist on automatic pilot It must have a godly concern from her members, demonstrated in prayer for her future and for her leaders, demonstrated in faithfully attending and working in the church, demonstrated by a desire to grow spiritually, personally, and to help others do the same. We have to understand that the struggle is real. And we have to be engaged in it. Secondly, I want you to notice, not only is the struggle real, but secondly, the heart is encouraged this is one way that we can have victory over the struggle if our heart is encouraged look at verse 2 Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged knit together in love and as a result then to reach all of the fullness of the riches of the full assurance of understanding our hearts need to be encouraged who among us does not need more encouragement We live in a day where criticism is far more common than encouragement, where discouragement is often the lot of people rather than encouragement, where we are often looking for other people to encourage us. But as is so often the case in a a number of venues, if you're wanting people to encourage you, I want to ask you, who are you encouraging? That is, who are you taking the time to come alongside, which is what the word encouragement means. It simply means to come alongside and help someone else. Now, we have to distance ourselves from our own culture here for just a moment. When he says our hearts need encouragement, for us, the heart is the seat of our emotions. That is, it's that subjective inner, inner thing that, that we associate with the emotions. That's why we say things like, bless your heart, whatever, the, whatever that means. I don't know what that means, but we say, bless your heart. It's an emotional thing. But in the Bible, in the first century, the heart is not just the seat of the emotion. The heart is actually the seat of the entire personality. That is, the heart is also the seat of the will and of the thinking. So we might better translate this, or at least apply it, as heart and head. This is not just an emotional thing, but this is an emotional thing and an intellectual thing. So Paul says our minds, our wills, our beings need to be encouraged. We need people to come alongside us. What if I were to say to you that this afternoon I I intended to take this piano and move it to my office. But I don't need your help. I'm going to do it all by myself. You would say that's an impossibility. You could never do that. You can't even get that piano off this stage by yourself, much less to your office. But now what if I said, well, I need eight or ten other people to help me. It'd still be a tough task. But with eight or ten people and probably several hours, we could make it happen. Because with the help of other people, it would be easier. Not easy, but easier. And that's what the word encourage means. It means that we have other people coming alongside us, helping us bear the burden, helping us bear the load. And when we have that in the body of Christ, when our hearts are encouraged, he says, the effect of that is we are knit together in love. And here is a picture of a church working together rather than fighting against each other. Now, loving unity is, is essential if we are to move forward as a church, but that doesn't mean that we must agree on everything. We have the mistaken idea that unity means uniformity. That unity means we all think alike and act alike and respond alike. That's not what unity means. We are unified around the the mission, around the gospel. Now we may disagree on how to put that into practice and we may even disagree about various aspects of the faith, but we can unify around the gospel and work together in love so that the church can move forward. And this takes us encouraging one another rather than criticizing one another. Mark Twain famously said, I can live for two months on one good compliment. That's how much we need encouragement. And you and I need to encourage one another in the body of Christ. And the result will be not only that we will be knit together in love, but then he goes on to say that we will experience genuine wealth. All the riches and treasures that we find in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, maybe it's not so obvious, I need to state it. Paul is not talking here about material resources when he says riches and treasures. He's talking about something much more important, the wealth of knowing God and the treasure of following his wisdom. Basically, he's saying that it is a rich man who understands the gospel and lives accordingly that this is what we genuinely need, not more resources financially necessarily, but what we need is the treasure that we find in Christ. When we have a treasure, we often hide it. We hide it in order to protect it. That is, we don't want anyone to have access to it. And so Paul says our treasure is that we are hidden in Christ. And the result being that we have the full assurance Verse 3 is what some call the Christological high point of this entire letter. Look at it again. He says in verse 2, is Christ. And then he says, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, leading to full assurance. And when we have full assurance, that minimizes the attraction of other beliefs. So our hearts need to be encouraged. We need to recognize that the struggle is real, and one way we overcome the struggle, have victory over the struggle, is that our hearts are encouraged mutually one another in the body of Christ. And the reason this is so important is thirdly, the deception is enticing. I mean, if it weren't enticing, then we wouldn't fall prey to it, right? I mean, that's why the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. If it weren't, we wouldn't fall prey to it. And likewise, the deception of false teaching is is also enticing, either as individuals or as a church, and therefore we must avoid this deception. The Colossians were in danger, and therefore Paul wanted them to avoid the the danger and continue along their same path. That is, they needed to remain steadfast, which meant avoiding the deception. Verse 4, The first explicit warning that something is wrong here. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible or your translation might say fine sounding arguments. We've talked about it already because I was giving you the context of this letter. And so we've said from from the first that there were false teachers who were either coming in or growing up from within trying to lead them astray. But this is the first time that we actually see that this is a problem in the church. They were trying to move the people away from the sufficiency of Christ. That is that Christ is all you need. And that is why over and over again, Paul says, no, you have everything you need in Christ. He is sufficient for our salvation. He is sufficient for our sanctification. And in him, we have all the wisdom and knowledge that we can ever need. And that is why Paul is reminding them of what they have. They don't need to search out other things. They don't need to be persuaded by slick arguments or fine-sounding rhetoric. In our day and age, we might need to add other things. Charismatic speech, and by charismatic, I'm not talking about a branch of Christianity. I'm talking about how, how people can, can sway you with their arguments, Or we might even add multimedia presentations these days or light and music shows. And I'm not criticizing other churches. I'm simply acknowledging that there are churches you can go to where the show is very impressive. And if you're not careful, you will be brought into the show and not understand that behind the show is a defective or even a false gospel. And you get brought into that show and everything is so well done that you don't see behind everything else. You see, the trouble with false teaching is that it looks and sounds so much like the real thing, and that's why discernment is essential, and discernment is so little valued in our day, our day of fake news, our day of slanted reports, misleading headlines. I can't tell you how many articles I've clicked on, and I still do it. I don't know why. It says so-and-so reveals all. You know, there's some, there's some issue that's going on and some celebrity has revealed all and I take the bait I click on the I click on the article and they basically reveal nothing I read this article and I think that's nothing misleading headlines trying to convince us to read the article and we do the second way we see this deception here or we, the second way we overcome the deception is not only to avoid it but to accept discipline Paul comments on their good order That's a word that means discipline. And on this Memorial Day weekend, that's a military term. And you men, women who have served in the military know that there is order in the military. That's an understatement. I mean, there's discipline in the military. And there ought to be discipline in the Christian life as well. I know it sounds like a dirty word to us sometimes. But the reality is it is the core of a life well lived. Discipline simply means doing what is right even when it's not popular or even when no one else is watching. And when it comes to our faith, we need the disciplines of the Christian life. And I mention this over and over again because we need to be reminded of it because we can forget or we can simply grow slack. The disciplines of reading and studying the scripture, the daily quiet time we often call it. That may not be so monumental in that moment, but it is the discipline of doing that over and over and over again that leads to an increased understanding of God and ultimately to maturity. The discipline of prayer and of giving, of faithfully attending and of serving through the local church. Doing all of these things with other believers as a vital element to it. That is not trying to do these things on our own, but doing it one with another. It is much easier to fall into false teaching when we are on our own and much easier to stay in the truth when we have others who surround us but you say well Paul wasn't part of the group he even says there I'm not with you face to face but I'm with you in spirit something you've tried to tell me from time to time when you've missed church oh pastor I want you to understand I'm not going to be there Sunday but I'm going to be with you in spirit that's not what Paul means here Paul is not with them in person because he's in prison. So if you're in prison, I'll understand that you have to skip church. But he's saying, I am with you. And clearly from this letter, we know he is. He is facing this struggle with them, and he is not there in person, but he certainly is there with his presence. And Paul says we need to avoid the deception and accept discipline, both of which are done as believers with the local body called the church. And then we look at the last thing, the walk, verses 6 and 7, is continuous. Verses 6 and 7 are a basic summary of the response Paul desires for every believer. Chapter 1, we've talked about how he encouraged them, how he talked about how they had initially responded to the gospel and have continued to respond to the gospel. And now he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That word walk is the first command that we come across in this letter. And it basically forms the basis of what Paul wants us to do in our lives. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You received him by faith. Therefore, continue to live by faith. When we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we understand that we are totally dependent upon him, that we cannot earn our own salvation, that we cannot contribute to our own salvation, that all we contribute is sin, and that sin has separated us from God. And therefore, when we humble ourselves and repent of our sin and by faith trust in him, we are utterly dependent upon him to do all that is necessary in salvation. Paul is simply saying, yes, and that is all equally true when it comes to your walk with Christ, that you cannot do anything apart from Christ. Even as it is true in salvation, it is equally true in sanctification, and you will find that Christ is sufficient for both. To show us this, he gives us four participles, four ways or means to conduct our lives, First, he says that Christians are to be rooted in Christ. Roots, as I'm sure you are well aware, are for stability and for drawing up of nourishment. The broader the root system, the more prosperous the tree. In fact, there is a general rule that as broad as you can see a tree visibly, likewise as broad is the root system that you cannot see invisibly. And so he's saying the more that we anchor our lives in Christ, the more fruit that we will see. If you've ever seen an old Western, you, you know you, you see on those windy days the tumbleweeds blowing through the main street of town. The tumbleweed has one small root. And as it ages, it becomes very brittle. And that's why it is susceptible to even the slightest of winds. And therefore, the tumbleweed faces a short life, certain death, and the subject of even to the slightest of winds, which sort of sounds like a lot of professing Christians I know. They just have no root system. And therefore, the slightest of troubles throws them off course and makes what Paul says elsewhere shipwreck of their faith. But the Bible tells us in Psalms, that the man who walks with God is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in a season, and it does not wither, and whatever he does, it prospers. We must be rooted in Christ. Secondly, he says, we are to be built up in Christ. So he switches the metaphors now. It's not agricultural, it's construction now. It applies to a building. Being built up in him refers to the building up of the foundation our lives are to be built on the foundation and the person of Christ. And every contractor knows the importance of a good and solid foundation. Without it, the building will simply topple over. So, as Christians, our foundation must be upon Jesus Christ. And on that foundation, we build up. He builds us up. We're not building a ranch style house that goes this way, we're building a, a home that goes upward. And it is always adding layer upon layer, but all of those layers laid upon the foundation, which is Christ himself. Thirdly, he says, we are to be established in the faith. This means that we are to be mature. And we've talked about this, so I won't belabor the point this morning. In fact, we saw from chapter 1 that this was Paul's goal, to present every man mature in Christ. So as we are rooted in him and built up in him, we grow to maturity, we are established in the faith, which leads then to the fourth participle, all of this done in or with thanksgiving. Paul often uses gratitude or thankfulness as a litmus test for the Christian life and for the Christian's health. Growing Christians are thankful Christians, and obviously the opposite is also true. If you and I are rooted, built up, and established in Christ, we are by nature going to be thankful Christians. On the other hand, if we are not those things, we will not be. And thankfulness will help us overcome and have victory over the spiritual battles. Whereas if we are critical and complaining Christians, we will not. I was in a meeting this week with other pastors We hadn't really started the meeting yet. We were just chit-chatting about various things. And just out of the blue, one guy changed the conversation and looked directly at another guy and said, have you received the vaccination? I don't know why he asked it, but he did. And we were all sort of taken aback by it because it just was so different from what we were talking about. But the guy to whom he directed the question sort of chuckled and he said, that's a personal question. And he never answered. I don't know why he wouldn't answer the question, but he didn't. I've been vaccinated. I'm asking you this morning if you've been vaccinated. And no, I'm not talking about COVID. One commentator said this, and this was written pre-COVID. He said, this epistle to the Colossians is a vaccination against heresy. It is not an antibiotic for those who are already afflicted. So when I read that, I thought, well, I've got to use that in the midst of our culture and what we're going through. I've got to use that quote. So this, is a, this letter is a vaccination. That is, it is an opportunity for us to see the things we need to do to be vaccinated against heresy, to be vaccinated against false gospels that are prevalent in our society. We hear a lot about vaccinations these days, but I'm talking about a spiritual vaccination. And part of that is an active church life. A vaccination will not guarantee you won't lose the spiritual battle, but it does go a long way toward victory. We said at the outset that we will all face spiritual battles, personally and corporately. And to win those battles, we need each other. One of the things that I'm convinced is going to come out of this pandemic, even as we are coming out of it, is one of two things when it comes to the church. I'm convinced there are going to be some people who say, you know what? The lockdown showed me that I don't need the church. And studies are predicting that upwards of 30% of church attenders pre-pandemic will not return because they've gone on to other things and just decided they don't need it. And what I'm saying to those, maybe some who are listening or watching, who have come to that conclusion is it won't happen this week or next week, but I'm telling you, It will happen eventually. You will make shipwreck of your faith by deciding that you don't need the church. So the other thing that will come out of this is the opposite. People like many of you perhaps, who having been distant and disconnected from the church for a time, have now come back and said, I missed it, I need it. I can't live the Christian life without it. That's exactly what Paul is saying in not only this text, but throughout the book of Colossians. We need one another to win the spiritual battles that we will inevitably face. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, warning us, alerting us to the spiritual dangers that were not only in in the first century, but are in our century. And I pray that we would learn to fight these spiritual battles together. That we would not ignore them as if they do not exist, nor try to isolate ourselves and and conquer them alone. But we would fight them together with our hearts being encouraged with one another. So that we can overcome and find our strength in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond as God may be leading.